Please open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 11. That can be found on page 348 if you're using the Pew Bibles. It's always a great idea to have scriptures opened as the pastors are preaching to you, but particularly tonight I think you'll find it helpful as we're covering a lot of territory. This last song that Kurt sang, it reminds me that that's one of his original songs that he's written, and on Friday, July the 30th, there'll be a concert between him and Paul Rainheim, who he wrote that with for the Woodrake session. So if you didn't hear his announcement last week, please be on the lookout for that. Chapters 1 through 5 of Joshua outline the preparation of Israel as they prepared for battle. Chapters 6 through 11 outline the battles themselves as Israel conquered Canaan. So tonight I'm at the very end of the battles. And as we look at these battles, we'll see that if the promised land were the east coast of the United States, Jericho would be centrally located at about where Washington, D.C. is. So Joshua entered in there, and then he went to the south and conquered that land, which we read about last week in chapter 10. Tonight, he turns to the north for the northern portion of the conquest. I'm going to read chapter 11 in its entirety, and I want you to follow along listening for the actions of the Canaanite people in the north, the actions of the Lord, and the actions of Joshua. Joshua chapter 11. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, this being the conquest in the south, when he heard of this, he sent word to Jobab, king of Madon, to the kings of Shimron and Ashaph, into northern kings who were in the mountains, in the Arabah, son of south of Kinnereth, in the western foothills, and in Napheth door on the west to the Canaanites, in the east and west to the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, and Jebusites in the hill country, and to the Hivites below Hermon in the region of Mizpah. They came out with their troops and a large number of horses and chariots and a huge army as numerous as the sand on the seashore. All these kings joined forces and made camp together at the waters of Meram to fight against Israel. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, because by this time tomorrow I will hand all of them over to Israel, slain. You are to hamstring their horses and burned their chariots. So Joshua and his whole army came against them suddenly at the waters of Merom and attacked them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. They defeated them and pursued them all the way to greater Sidon, to Mizrafoth, Miam, into the valley of Mizpah on the east until no survivors were left. Joshua did to them as the Lord had directed. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots. At that time, Joshua turned back and captured Hazor and put its king to the sword. Hazor had been the head of all the kingdoms. Everyone in it they put to the sword. 
They totally destroyed them, not sparing anything that breathed, and he burned up Hazor itself. Joshua took all these royal cities and their kings and put them to the sword. He totally destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Yet Israel did not burn any of the cities built on their mounds except Hazor, which Joshua burned. The Israelites carried off for themselves all the plunder and livestock of the cities, but all the people they put to the sword until they completely destroyed them, not sparing anyone that breathed. As the Lord commanded his servant Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did it. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. So Joshua took the entire land, the hill country, all the Negev, the whole region of Goshen, the western foothills, the Arabah, the mountains of Israel with their foothills, from Mount Halak, which rises toward Sair, to Baal, the God, in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. He captured all their kings and struck them down, putting them to death. Joshua waged war against all these kings for a long time. Except for the Hivites living in Gibeon, not one city made a treaty of peace with the Israelites who took them in the battle. For it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel so that he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy as the Lord had commanded Moses. At that time, Joshua went back and destroyed the Anakites from the hill country, from Hebron to Beer and Anab, from all the hill country of Judah, from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua totally destroyed them and their towns. No Anakites were left in the Israel, Israelite territory, only in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod did any survive. So Joshua took the entire land just as the Lord had directed Moses, and he gave it as inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions. Then the Lord, sorry, then the land had rest from war. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, this is a difficult text to read in many ways, and yet in this holy war, there is a message of grace, a message of mercy, and a message that Jesus truly is worthy of all that he asks in our lives. I pray that in this time we have together, that you would give me the ability to unpack that which you have taught me in such a way that these, your people, might hear and be encouraged. And if there indeed is one in here tonight who lives with this hardened heart, would tonight be the night that you arrest them and allow them to see the truth of who you are in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I heard the story of a, a gathering in the early 90s between J.I. Packer and Sinclair Ferguson. Evidently, they were at some teaching conference, and at the end of the night, the two of them gathered together with their wives, and they were just sharing stories and updating one another on their families. But like good theologians, at some point, the conversation transitioned to the ways of the Lord. James Packer said, There are times, there are times where God is like a wild animal. Sinclair Ferguson, not quite sure what to do with that comment, knowing that J.I. Packer was an Englishman. At that point, an elderly Englishman, and didn't take a lot of correction. He waited for a moment. 
Shortly thereafter, J.I. Packer's wife corrected him. No, Jim. No, Jim. Not wild. Undomesticated. Well, the point is, is that whatever word you decide to use, there are moments in Scripture, like chapter 11, where we see what the Old Testament calls a warrior God. Sinclair Ferguson later went on to comment about that conversation, and he said, there are moments in scriptures when the Lord is on the move saving his people, and he is ferocious. He's ferocious in saving them, and he's ferocious in putting down his enemies. And he does this in the context of a holy war. Sinclair Ferguson went on. He made what seemed like a throwaway comment to him, but it was one that turned out to be the key in my mind to understand chapter 11 of Joshua. He said, when the Bible gives details about a holy war, it's not inviting you to understand military strategy. Rather, it's helping you to understand spiritual battles. It's not strategies for a physical war, but there are strategies for you and I in our own holy war, in the spiritual battles that we face. We're about to come to Ephesians chapter 6 in the, in the morning services. It's there where we learn that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but rather it's against the powers of this dark world. It's against the spiritual world that's fighting against us. And what I want to walk you through tonight is there are principles in Joshua 11 that will enable us to understand how to battle well in the Lord as we become more and more made in the image of Christ. I'm going to go through three principles under each point. Point number one. Point number one is ominous opposition. Here's the principle. Whenever the Lord, whenever the Lord is bringing about his work of salvation, we should expect concerted opposition. Whenever the Lord is bringing about a new work of salvation, we should expect a concerted opposition. We see this in the first five verses of chapter 11. The text moves slowly, and it is dense. I have zoysia grass at my house, and as I've taught my boys to cut the grass, the first mistake they make is they grab the lawnmower, and they literally start to jog with the mower to get it done as quickly as they can. No, 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 no. This is zoysia grass. It's very thick. It's dense. You have to move slowly to get it. Well, these first five verses, it is dense. It is compressed. And if you're to understand the opposition, you're going to have to work slowly through it. First of all, we see that the king, the king of greatest power is Jabin. The name Jabin actually means ability. So Joshua is going against king ability. There's just certain names that when you face them, it's intimidating. I'm reminded of this as the Summer Olympics approach. And, of course, 
many of us will watch track and field. And if I ever ran against someone whose last name was Bolt, <laughs> I'd be intimidated. You just have the thought that I'm about to run against a lightning bolt here. And the name alone would strike fear as competitors line up to race against Usain Bolt. Well, the same would be true here. King Jabin is name means ability, but we quickly see that his military prowess is just as strong. He begins to collect this confederation of soldiers from around the world, around the region, excuse me. And it's thick. It says, well, I think there was two kings that were invited to be a part of this. And then it goes on to four cities. And then it begins to describe several regions in the area. And then it begins to describe six different people groups. As the author is trying to describe this, it's actually comical to me. It says, yes, it's a large army. And then it begins to say, it's a huge army. And then not believing that you understand just how big this army is, he, he breaks out in hyperbole. This army is, is as numerous as the sands on the seashore. Josephus, a Jewish historian later, gave an account that he thought that this troops were 300,000 infantry, 100,000 cavalry, and 20,000 chariots. These chariots themselves would have been a new element into the warfare as well. Do you get the picture? The author's describing this ominous opposition that the nation of Israel, under the leadership of Joshua, is about to face. So our family drove up to Indiana a couple of weeks ago. We got a phone call from Amber's father saying, you need to be careful. There's a flash storm that's sweeping across the state, and it's severe. Now, as a general rule of thumb, I never pull off when it rains. Slow down, turn the windshield wipers on, hit the hazards, but you just have to keep going, and I judge all those people who get scared of cats and just pull off to the side of the road. But this one, he said, no, you really need to watch it. This is different than storm than what you might be accustomed to. So we pulled it up on our radar, and we thought that we had eluded it because we could see the storm to the north of us. But as we were driving along, it was that part in the Midwest, if you've been out there, where the sky is just different. It begins just to open up, and you can see a much broader spectrum, panoramic view of the sky. And within a minute, this blue sky turned the darkest gray that I've ever seen in my life. It wasn't black, but it was gray. And it wasn't a cloud. It was the entire sky. About a minute later, driving rain was coming down to the point where I kept hitting the windshield wipers, trying to get them to speed up, but there just was nothing left in there. A minute later, although we could barely hear with the rain, hail started to pelt the van, and you could just begin the pinging against the metal shell of the van. A moment later, all of our phones alerted us with this and at that point I said, it's time to pull over. <laughs> we pulled off the side of the road beneath this medical canopy of a gas station realizing that what we were facing was much larger than what we were prepared for. That's a picture of what Joshua was facing as they approached this northern kingdom. What's the principle? 
The principle is that when the Lord is bringing about his physical work of deliverance, which is this last point of deliverance in Joshua, you should expect to read strong opposition. Well, in the same way, when the Lord is bringing about a new work of salvation, a new work of deliverance in your life, you too should expect a concerted opposition. So I thought about this week, a few stories came to mind of just incidents where this, I think, proves to be true. I think of a young man who was at a, a crossroads of his life of sorts. Knowing that I was a pastor, he reached out to me and said, Hey, can we meet? I just have some questions about essentially the role of faith in life. We set a time to meet. It was a Thursday afternoon after he worked, and I got to the location I was supposed to be 15 minutes late, 30 minutes late. I just called him. I said, hey. I said, are you coming? He goes, oh, I am so sorry. I totally forgot. I was with some guys at work. We got to talking, and, you know, I'm in this particular part of the city. He goes, honestly, he said, I'm about uh, four or five beers into the afternoon, and I'm really just in no place to talk about this right now. But let's catch up another time. I'd like to discuss this with you. I tried him a couple more times, and whatever that little flicker was in his life, whatever reason he didn't want to meet, I ask you, was that a coincidence that afternoon in his life that these friends invited him and he found himself in that same spot once again? Or was he experiencing opposition? I think of another instance of a man in my, I was talking with him at one point, and he, in his mind, had a love of money, preventing him from being generous towards anyone or any institution. And he, by faith, he said, I'm going to begin to make some m movement in this life. And he started to move his money to generous ways. Shortly thereafter, he received an unexpected medical bill. He came back and said, I'm questioning all of this. I knew I should not have done those things. I ask you, is that a coincidence, do you think, when the Lord is doing a new work to be tested in that? I think of areas in my own life, covetousness, the way that I judge others. I've had moments, like I'm sure you have as well, where there's a concerted effort to see these sins in my life and to say, Lord, I'm ready for you to do a new work. And just as sure as I make that commitment, the following day I find myself in a position that once again I move back into the exact same trap as before and engage in that sin as I once did, leaving myself discouraged, questioning the power of the Lord in my life. And I ask you, putting myself in those positions at these moments where I'm looking to be delivered in a new way, sanctified in a new way, and when I find myself in these places of vulnerability, is that coincidence, do you feel like? Or are we to understand that when the Lord is prepared to do a new work in your life, you need to expect opposition? And prepare yourself for that. 
As you pray for the Lord to do a new work, you need to pray as well, Lord, I'm expecting strong opposition as you begin to deliver this part of my life. In these moments where we feel discouraged, as we're facing this opposition, I think this next point will be of great help to you, and we need to remember this. Point number two, there is an omnipotent overseer. The principle is this, that God's sovereignty requires a response. God's sovereignty requires a response. We see his sovereignty on really on full display here in his conquering of the northern kingdom and in his rendering judgment against these people. First, we see his sovereignty in this victorious battle. I mean, it really... If you read this text and you read the first five verses, you are bracing for an amazing, epic battle filled with details, filled with stories about what took place. And yet, you read through in just a few words, the battle's over. There's just nothing there. All this hype... And then it just fizzles out. I remember in 1998, the boxing match between Mike Tyson and Michael Spinks. It was touted to be one of the best heavyweight fights ever. It was the battle of the undefeated. It was an opportunity to unify the different belts. At the time, it was the largest purse for any boxing match. And it wasn't just days, it wasn't just weeks, it was months of media coverage leading up to this fight. And the week before, it was, there was an intensity to this great battle. On the night of the fight, they did that same thing where they have about 16 fights before that you don't care anything about, you're just waiting for the main event. Lights went out, boxers came up, and everybody was excited, and just over a minute, it was over through a knockout. It was all hype. And at the end, it just fizzled out. It was over before it even started. That's actually what we see here in verse 6. We see one little word of God is able to overcome the greatest armies in the world. Before I move away from verse 6 and 7, I want you to see something. In verse 6, we have the promise, the assurance of God's promise. And in verse 7, we read of Joshua, he acts immediately. Promise of God's sovereignty and then man's taking action in light of that. This August, yeah, this August, uh, Dale Ralph Davis is going to join us on August the 29th to give us an overview of the book of Joshua. In my mind, he's got one of the best commentaries there is on this book. It's rich, it's enjoyable, it's funny at times. But he says this about this interplay between God's promise in chapter 6 and man's response to it. He says, I don't want to overplay these two texts, verse 6 and 7, but isn't the sequence significant? Divine sovereignty does not negate human activity, but stimulates it. Some will allege that if God ordains something as certain, it renders human effort irrelevant. Just let go and let God. 
But God's sovereignty is not a doctrine that shackles us, but a reality that liberates us. Not a cloud that stifles, but an elixir that invigorates. When I think of most of the big decisions in my life, when I get jammed on them, if you really boil it down, I'm left with a decision that's either going to be motivated in fear or it's going to be motivated by faith. And what this text is wanting us to understand is that when you understand the sovereignty of God, that it will and it should push you towards faith. There is a fascinating detail at the end of this chapter that I wonder how many of you picked up on. You go through the story and you have all these Jebusites, all these different Hivites, but then at the very end there's this detail beginning at chapter 20, verse 21 that talks about the Anakites. Now if you have a Bible with cross references, I'd be willing to guarantee you at that moment where it says Anakites, there's a Note there, cross-reference back to Numbers 13. But what's the significance with that? What's going on there? Numbers 13 takes us back to Moses. This was just as the spies were going in to take a look at the promised land. Twelve went. Ten of them came back with a report that's saying, uh-uh, we cannot go in there. And what was their reasoning? giants and what were those giants descendants of Anakites so here we have at the end of chapter 11 the very people group that had the greatest fear to the Israelites and they were just a, a speed bump in God conquering of that land I don't want to trivialize the text and ask you who are the giants in your life? Where does the greatest sense of fear come from? But I, I think to not consider that leaves this text unapplied. What are those areas of your life that when you consider them, you are more prone to move by fear and not faith. And what this text is saying is as you understand the sovereignty of God, who with one little word can overcome the greatest of armies in the world, as you remember that, then you too will be empowered to live by faith. Well, we see his sovereignty in the conquering of this army He's also sovereign as he renders judgment. And this too calls us into action. You can't make your way through this text and not get to verse 20 where it says, The Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel so he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy. 
It's a difficult text, isn't it? It's troubling. This isn't the only place in Scripture where this idea of hardening hearts comes up. In fact, the the greatest work on this is Exodus chapter 4 through 14, where we read of Pharaoh's heart being hardened along the way. Apostle Paul picks that up in Romans chapter 9 as well. But the, the summary is this, that the Lord is the ultimate cause of the hardening of the heart. Now, I know we could do an entire sermon just on that topic. And I can assure you, you would hear the entire sermon and you would still leave with questions. And I'm just going to focus on one question tonight that I think this text asks. If God is sovereign over the condition of mankind's hearts, then do our actions really matter? I'm going to get even a bit more specific than that. If you are not in the Lord, if your children at this point do not present themselves as in the Lord, if people that you know, friends, are not in the Lord, Has the Lord hardened their heart, and is there any hope for them? That's what this text, I think, forces you to deal with. And I think to answer this question, there's something amazing that happens at the beginning of chapters 9 and 10 and 11. It's the very first verse in each of those chapters. This is where the greatest warfare was taking place. And chapter 9 starts off, Now when all the kings of Jordan heard about these things, what they hear about? They heard about God coming through and rolling over the enemies. Chapter 10, same phrase. When the enemies heard of these things, chapter 11. When Jabin heard of these things. Why is that significant? Because it is a severe act of mercy of the Lord that he would allow these people to hear of God's sovereign power making his way through these nations. It was an opportunity for them to repent, to turn away. The very same word was used of Rahab. Rahab heard what the Lord had done and she turned towards him. The point of Rahab is to say that God's mercy and grace can go in any direction to anyone at any time. And surely if these people would have turned, then God's mercy would have met them right there in that moment. The question, the Bible never has us confront, wants us to wander the world or ask of our of children or ones that we love, Lord, have you heart in their heart? Lord, is there nothing for them to do? That's, that's paralysis. God's sovereignty is not wanting us to move towards paralysis, but it's wanting to push us to see his mercy and to see his judgment and to beg the Lord for the mercy of those that we love.
It calls us to action. God's sovereignty as he is winning battles in our lives, it calls us to action, to move by faith. And as he is rendering judgment, this too calls us to action and to cry out for his mercy. Last point, and I'll move through it quickly. Ongoing obedience. Principle. Spiritual battles require perseverance and dependence upon the Lord. Perseverance and dependence along dependence upon the Lord. Perseverance, verse 18. Joshua, it says, battled for a long time. I wonder as you read these chapters 6 through 10, 11, how long you think it lasted. I don't know if it's a chapter, give it a month apiece, that's five, six chapters, six, seven months. Well, actually, it was seven years. They can calculate that based on Caleb. They provided some information on when he entered and when he actually received his inheritance. So this battle was a lot longer than most of you realize. And it points to this reality that the spiritual battle that we're in, in our lives, it tends to last longer. And not only that, there's this interesting little line that, uh, that in Judges, the next chapter, that it talks about this city, Hazor, again. That the Canaanites re-inhabited it. And it leaves your head school. Well, wait a minute. I thought that they defeated them, and that, but that's not the way that it worked. There was advancements. And then there was declensions. And there was movement of displacing the enemies. And then they actually came back into those territories where they had already been overcome. Well, there again, isn't that the way that our life works as well? When I think about the sanctification in my own life, I can see moments of real gain. And then there's this movement back along the way. You know what that's called? That's called the normal Christian life. That there will be moments of losses and there will be moments of, that we gain. And we have to learn to get comfortable in that space and look to the Lord to help us. Final phrase, it says that then the land had rest from war. Why is that phrase even important in the first place? Well, Joshua, the Lord allowed him to provide rest for the land. There's about that much left in the Old Testament, isn't there? And if there was one thing that there was not, there was not rest for the people. As the story goes on, you have judges failing Kings fighting, you have just story after story of a restless people who are looking for ultimate rest. You get to the end of the prophecy and there's these little, these statements made about, is there going to be this greater Joshua who will one day come and give us rest? Curtain drops, Old Testament, 400 years go by, curtain comes up again, New Testament, and there there is this one born. 
his name, Yeshua, Jesus. Shortly thereafter, into his ministry, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Put my yoke upon your shoulders and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. What Jesus is saying is that I am the fulfillment of the Joshua. Joshua brought about a peace for the land, a rest for the land temporarily. But I have come to bring a peace to mankind. And as we engage in our spiritual battles, what this text wants us to understand is the opposition is too great. The ongoing obedience is not something that you possess. And the only way that we're going to battle well to wear this harness and to push forward is to understand that Christ is with us, that Christ is in us, that he has made promises for us in this spiritual journey. They would not have understood this as the chapter 11 closes But we now have these promises that are ours in Christ that will indeed allow us to battle well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this gift of Christ in us. Father, thank you for the invitation that you allow those who are weary and burdened to come to you. And as we come to you in this spiritual battle, we indeed will battle well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.